So we're going to be in Acts. We're going to finish up chapter 6, and we're going to try to go all the way through chapter 7. Chapter 7 is a little long, but um, we're going to try to get through it. It's mostly a summation of the Old Testament by Stephen. But uh, it's, it's pretty, pretty powerful. So what we're going to see today, we're going to look at the last day of Stephen's life. We met Stephen last week when he was picked to be one of the first deacons in the church. He was ordained by the apostles. <clears throat> in uh, verse 6, it says, And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And that's kind of the end of that. There's, there's the break is right there, right? That's the end of a paragraph. And then the new paragraph starts this way. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. That's verse 8, chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, performing great wonders and signs among the people. So here we're going to, here's what we're going to try to see today. We're going to see the last day in Stephen's life. And uh, so there's, it's a very clarifying moment when, when somebody passes from this, this life to the next. It's a very revealing moment of their heart. This guy... Uh, Marquette Hughes tells a story in Guinness chapter about a young man he saw killed when he was young. He went up to a store and a, a gun battle had just taken place and a young man had tried to rob the store had been shot in the belly. He had shot some people in the store but the point of the story was while this young man was out there laying in the, on the side of the road dying he was just blaspheming, you know, hatred. So his point was that what's in our heart is what comes pouring out of us. And in contrast to that, when uh, Jonathan Edwards died, he died peace in his bed, asking, where is my friend Jesus? I want to see my friend Jesus, my ever-loving my ever -loving friend Jesus. So we're going to see the death of Stephen here today. <clears throat> So we're, what we're going to see is how he lived, what he said, how he died. That's what that's what's recorded here. So in verses, um, what I got here, six, six eight through six fifteen, we're going to see how how Stephen lived. <clears throat> he lived with grace and power and wisdom. So let's look at this. So we got some descriptors of Stephen here in a couple of verses that give us a good description of Stephen. So if we go back to chapter 6, verse 3, it says, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. So there you go right there. All these men were full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. Then in, chapter, in verse 5, it says this, The statement found approval with the whole congregation, 
they chose Stephen, and here we see a man full of faith. There's one, there's another one there. He's full of faith. And of the Holy Spirit. So we got Holy Spirit, wisdom, and faith so far. Then in verse 8, we get some more descriptors. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. So we got he's full of the Spirit, he's full of wisdom, he's full of faith, he's full of grace, and he's full of power. All in those couple of few verses. <clears throat> Now, I'm going to submit to you that Stephen was what we should call a normal Christian. That's a normal Christian man. He was, he was, um, so there, let me just say that's not an average Christian, okay? A normal Christian, full of the Spirit and exhibiting the fruits of that Spirit, wisdom and faith and grace and forgiveness, peace and patience. Uh, Vance Habner would say, said that, I don't know the quote exactly, but something to the effect of the average Christian today are, we're so used to the average Christian today that when we see a normal Christian, we label them as abnormal. But we see what's, what we see here with Stephen is a normal Christian. He's just a guy they picked to serve food to the widows. He's not an apostle. He's just a church member, but he did live it in an extraordinary time. And scripture's being given, the church is being born. And we see him state performing great signs and wonders among the people. So my submission that Stephen was a normal Christian. And we all could be normal Christians. I have one quote, and that's the only quote I have for today. This is from uh, let me give y'all the reference here while I read it. Number two in maintaining the ministry. This is from Campbell Morgan in his work The Acts of the Apostles written in 1924. So this is a quote from 1924. <clears throat> I guess I should read the quote, huh? Mm -hmm. It says this, quote, A man full of the Spirit is one who is living a normal Christian life. Fullness of the Spirit is not a state of spiritual aristocracy to which few can attain. Anything less than the fullness of the Spirit for the Christian man is disease of the spiritual life. It is a low ebb of vitality. Fullness of the Spirit is not abnormal, but normal Christian life, end quote. Now we have this record of Stephen's, of Stephen here. This is a very important event. This is the first martyr, Christian martyr, well, after Jesus. The first member of Jesus' church, and he, he, he's supposed to give us a great, um, kind of like condensed version of the story of the beginning of Israel is it's pretty awesome. But that's the first thing I want us to see here in Stephen's life. He lived like Christ. Okay? So we're going to see that he was full of grace and power. What does that mean? If you're full of grace, grace pours out to you to other people. 
We're, we're gracious to others because God has been gracious to us. And I don't want us to get too hung up on the signs and wonders because it doesn't say what he was doing. But when I was studying this this week and pondering it and thinking about it, I caught myself thinking, well, Stephen was healing people. Well, it doesn't say that. The text doesn't say that. There were more gifts, spiritual gifts, than just healing. There's a gift of prophecy, which I was—I would submit that is what Stephen exhibits here in this sermon he gives to the Sanhedrin. The gift of prophecy, which is the ability to expound, have insight in the scripture, to understand it, to articulate it. <clears throat> he may have had the gifts of tongues, where he can talk to many people, people of many different dialects and relate the gospel in a clear way. We don't know. But it seems as if whenever the apostles ordained these men, they passed on some, or they, they didn't pass, but the Spirit gave these men some of the gifts of the Spirit, okay? Because it plainly says there, he performed great wonders and signs among the people. And the language that's used there is the same language used of Jesus back in Acts 2. So, safe to say, Stephen was doing some extraordinary things among the people. So he, he lived the way Jesus lived. Okay? He lived with grace and, and the Holy Spirit. And you know, he exhibited the, the uh, fruits of the Spirit. He also knew the power of perseverance. We see that at the end of this chapter when he's being killed. He, uh, while he's on his knees being stoned, he stands tall for Christ. You know, he, he's like... Um, like Jonathan Edwards at his death, he's he's full of the Spirit. Okay. He uh, he shared in Christ's wisdom. We see that in verse ten, where it says, "But they were unable to cope with the wisdom of the Spirit with which he was speaking. They couldn't contend with his insight and understanding of the Scriptures. They just they couldn't uh, they couldn't stand up to it. So he had he shared in Christ's wisdom." And we'll see that he shared in Christ's rejection in verses 11 through 14. There's a lot of parallels here between the accusations and trials of Stephen with the accusations and trials of Jesus. Some things I want us to notice in verse 9, he was handed over by the by Hellenistic Jews, okay? His own synagogue, basically, that he came out of. He had the same trumped-up charges of blasphemy that Jesus had. And he had the same cord that convicted Jesus. This, this same group of men, the same Sanhedrin, the same high priest, the same ones who had earlier convicted Jesus and sent him to the cross. And we don't know how much exactly how much time has passed here between the trial of Jesus and this trial, or this mock trial of Jesus. You say that in the mock trial of Stephen. But everything I've read and studied on says they this is basically the same group of men. And it is the same high priest. Okay, So we're going to see all that. Stephen lived like Christ. He knew the power of the perseverance. He shared in Christ's wisdom. He shared in Christ's rejection. Okay, So let's read that part. Starting in verse 8. <clears throat> let's start in verse 7 because that's where the paragraph starts. Right? So we end one thought here. They brought him before the apostles after praying. They laid their hands on them. In the paragraph new paragraph. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, 
And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, which included both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. So this is Hellenistic Jews, okay, are the ones rising up to argue with Stephen. Now, why are they doing this? He's already called them out. We don't know for sure, but a good assumption here is that we know the Hellenistic Jews were a minority in Jerusalem. They were not well looked upon. They didn't speak the local language. They were out-of-towners. Okay. And Stephen was causing probably a lot of problems for them for their synagogue. I don't know. We don't know exactly. But for some reason, this Hellenistic synagogue of Jews rose up against Stephen, who was also a Hellenistic Jew. He might have been, they may be like, man, we need to keep our head low. You're making a lot of trouble for us here. You know, we just want to lay low here, not, not cause a scene. We don't know. That's kind of what I picture. But anyway, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's not irrelevant that these are Hellenistic Jews that are taking Stephen to the Sanhedrin. He's a problem for them for some reason. Okay. So, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So there it is. He shared in Christ's wisdom. They couldn't argue him down off of what his points were. You know, they couldn't argue with him. He was so. They had no choice but to do what came next. So then they secretly induced men to say, now notice how this sounds a lot like something we've read before in the Gospels. They secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. Then they put forward false witnesses who said... This man incessantly speaks against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And then we see this statement. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. And that can be interpreted a few different ways. Uh, depending, I guess, depending on what kind of tradition come out of. One commentator I, I read said he believes that his face was actually shining with like the Shekinah glory. I tend to think he just he just had this calm composure. You know, he was confident in what he's saying. He's confident in his theology, and he's not ruffled at all by sitting in front of this powerful. I mean, it's like, this, this would be like him sitting in front of a joint session of Congress. And he's just like, I got this. All right. Could be either one. We don't, doesn't say exactly. Well, it's crazy that they still stoned him. Because Moses, his That's kind of what I was. Right. So was like, if this guy's sitting here, and he's got Shekinah glory of God shining out of his face, I think it would, maybe it would have been a little different scenario here. But, you know, 
Oh, I think they were still just kind of stuck in. But whatever it is, they see this guy sitting here, and his face is like the face of an angel. He is unruffled. He is not frightened. No fear. He is filled with the spirit. He knows he's good. No matter what, these, these men can't harm him. I, I think that's what it means. So let's move on. So, so here we come. We come to Stephen's address. Now, says address. Huh? Says address. That's what my Bible, my study Bible says. Stephen's address. He address he's going to address the Sanhedrin here. Okay. What does yours say? Against speech. Like this, speech. Yeah. Well, it's not really in defense because that's the point I'm about to make here. If you'll notice here, Sorry, Stephen tells me my Bible's wrong. I'm saying? telling you the words between the words are wrong. Because this is Stephen is not defending himself here. He does not attempt to defend himself. Yeah. He proclaims. Huh? Yes, but he's not defending himself. This was mostly about Moses, right? He's telling these men. Well, they asked him a question. Are these things so? Yeah, and then and he breaks right into Hear me, brethren and fathers. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham. He does not attempt to defend himself. So it's more of an indictment than a defense, if you read it. Right? So we'll it see. is a defense. We'll see. Well, I feel it's like if you're on trial, then you're. We'll, we'll get there. So he's being accused of blasphemy, okay, in front of a court. And then when the court asked, the judge asked, are these things so? He breaks right into, hey, let me tell you, here's what happened to Abraham. He, he doesn't say yes, no. They're lying about me, and none of that. He gives no defense of himself. He certainly he begins to exposit the Old Testament for these men in light of the new theology of Christ. Okay, so here's what we're going to see. This is the longest Old Testament commentary in the New Testament. One longest continuous like explanation. That's what this is. He's going to comment. This is like the Reader's Digest, kind of condensed version of Genesis. Y'all remember the Reader's Digest condensed books from when we were kids? Well, basically what Stephen's about to do here is he's going to take much of Genesis and a good portion of Exodus and some stuff after that, and he's going to condense it down into this concise message to these men, okay? to these leaders, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees. They're all here. Okay. So he's going to give them the Reader's Digest condensed version. And what Stephen's about to do here, okay, is he's going to bring the theology of Christ or this new high Christology of the church. You know, there was no Christology before this. This is all new. This is what the, this is what the apostles have been doing this whole time. When they, when they say they were praying, Administering of the word. That's what they've been doing. They've been developing these New Testament doctrines. Okay? And teaching it to the church. So Stephen is about to bring this theology of Christ to bear on the three main pillars of popular Judaism. Okay? He's been to knock the legs out from under their stool. These three pillars are the land, the law and Moses, and the temple. Okay? That's what his his argument is about to be. 
that these three things do not equal merit in the eyes of God. Okay? And knock their stool out from under. <clears throat> With the point at the end that you're you're not in because you have the land, the law, and the temple. And he's going to prove it to them. He's going to explain it to them. Okay? So that's what we're going to see here. So let's just, this is kind of long, so we're going to take this in sections. Okay? First, we're going to do the land. So here, first thing he's going to do is explain to them why the land does not equal salvation, basically. Okay? So this is his first attack, let's say. So he's got three main points in his his um, argument about the land. So his first main point is that God blessed Abraham and met with Abraham, even though he did not occupy so much as a foot of the land when this happened. Okay? So the land is not the blessing. So let's read that part. All right. Let's start in there. Chapter 7, verse 1. So these Hellenistic Jews from the synagogue of the freedmen make this accusation of Stephen. They drag him before the court, and the judge says, Stephen, are these things so? And he said, hear me, brethren and fathers. Notice how he's addressing these people with respect. Not he's not adversarial to them. He's just he just wants to give them the truth. He wants to tell them what's happening. Okay, hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, "Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you." Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him move to this country in which you are now living. Okay. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect. But God spoke to this effect that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land, and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years, and whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac, and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. So there's several chapters of Genesis condensed right there into eight verses. Okay, the main thrust there. And his point there is that all this happened when Abraham didn't possess a single foot in the land of promise. Okay. Now his next attack is going to be on how he blessed the patriarchs through Joseph while in Egypt. Okay. There was no promised land when this happened. So the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions, and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he 
He sent our fathers. That's the 12 tribes, right? All the sons of Jacob we're talking about. He sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob and his father and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers died. From there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for the sum of for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. Okay? There's the second one. All this happened in Egypt. Okay? Then the next one is he's going to bring the hammer down on them. Okay? This is his his uh, piece de resistance. He's going to say, he's going to show them how God met with and took care of Moses and his people outside the Holy Land. So we're going to see that Moses was born and raised in Egypt in verses 7 through 22. He matured in Midian in verse 29. He was commissioned for his work in the area of Mount Sinai. And God called it holy ground, even though it was not within the borders of Israel. Okay? So let's continue reading. But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. And it was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. Okay, so we're into Exodus now. So we basically went through almost most of Genesis and now we're into Exodus. It was at this time that Moses was born and he was lovely in the sight of God and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, he entered, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, that they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injured, injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? This remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After another 40 years had passed, so he's 80 now, if you'll notice, it was 40 years, he went to visit his brothers, killed the Egyptian, fled to Midian. Here's another 40 years have passed. This is an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and he approached 
to look more closely. <clears throat> there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear, but not ventured to look. But the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, and have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. Okay. So the summary here of all this talk about the land is that <clears throat> the greatest miracles of Israel happened in Egypt, at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness, not in the Promised Land. That's the point he's making to these men. Okay. So the next thing he's going to talk about is the exaltation of law of the law and the veneration of Moses. Remember what I said they have the land, the law, and the temple. So the next thing he's going to turn his attention to is the law. This is in verses 34 through 43. Alright, so let's start on 34 again. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans and I have come down to rescue them. Come now and I'll send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they disowned saying, who made you a ruler and a judge is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. So you see that? All these things happened in Israel, or in Egypt, at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, okay, this is important, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brother. Now here's Stephen's first mention of Jesus. Now you don't call Jesus by name, but he refers to this prophet that Moses foretold that God would raise up from among the people like me, okay? This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai, on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and he received living oracles to pass on to you. So that's him, that's him receiving the law, not in the land, okay? And then what happened? Underline this. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us, for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, this guy, we do not know what happened to him. At that time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. Now when he says that, he means he gave them over to like worshiping the stars and the moon and the sun, like astrology stuff, right? Idolatry. He delivered them up to serve the host of heaven 
as it is written in the book of the prophets, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Rampha. He was the god of stars in Egypt. The images, the images which you made to worship, I also will remove you beyond Babylon. And that's what he's talking about. If you don't stop this, you're gonna, I'm going to send you into Babylonian captivity. Okay. So, what's he saying here? His basic argument is that Moses himself predicted that God would raise up another prophet like himself, that the people had rejected Moses and the law, and that the Jews' hope of redemption is not Moses or the law or the land, but the new and better Moses, namely Jesus, whom Moses had foretold God would rise up from among the people. Okay? So he's made his argument that just because you're in the land does not mean you're in. Just because you have the law does not mean you're in because you don't follow the law. We have left the law. We, we repudiated Moses. Okay? So the next point he makes is the temple. Because the refrain among the Jews was God is surely with us. We have the temple. But Stephen's going to answer this pillar of false security by quoting some Isaiah to him. Okay? So let's read that part. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers. There we go. We're, we're past Exodus now. Until the time of David. So he makes some pretty big jumps in time here. We're still, he's still expositing Old Testament. But now we're up to David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in a house made by human hands. As the prophet says, and this is Isaiah chapter 66, Heaven is my throne, and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? On what place is there for my repose or my rest? Where, am I, where, can, I, where can I rest? Was it not my hand which made all these things? So, remember, Stephen is in, they call it the, the Hall of Huge Stone, which is right by the temple. This is where the Sanhedrin meets, where this court happens. He's literally in the shadow of the temple. And he can just say, God don't live there. Okay? God doesn't live in a man made by human hands. That's what he said through, through Isaiah. So he just knocked that leg out from under their stool. Yep, and now he's just a real wild Yep. <laughs> now he's been uh, finished driving home the points. Okay, in 51 through 53. Go point right at these men. Just the way Peter's done before. Go put his finger right in their face. Okay. And he says, You men who are stiff necked, we all know what that means, right? That's, a, that's an ox and a, ox and a yoke that refuses to turn. 
is being directed by the the man with the reins. He will not turn to follow direction. Stiff-necked. Okay. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. That's another. He's telling these men, you think you're circumcised, but you're really not. You're circumcised in the flesh, but your heart and your ears are uncircumcised. Okay. He's really giving it to them. This is very severe language to, to this time, people in this time. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. Here he references Jesus again. Whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You killed the righteous one that Moses said would come. You who received the law is ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. So, here's what he's, he's told them, basically. You think you're safe because you possess the land and the law and Moses and the tabernacle of the temple. You are dead wrong. You have all sinned. You need a Savior. That Savior is the Holy, Righteous One foretold by Moses, whom you put on a cross and killed. So that's the... He's, he's, he's telling them Christology. You know, that all... You're not safe. Now how do they react? How do they react to this? We're about to see. So the next thing we're going to see is how... Stephen died. So we saw how he lived, how he was accused, how he was tried, how he responded, by how he spoke to these men. Now we're going to see how he died. So what do we see? He lived like Christ, spoke like Christ, and he's going to die like Christ. Which is right. All right, so we'll pick up in 54 here. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. I think most of them is going to say enraged again, right? Just like when we saw that earlier with Peter. When they heard this, they were enraged, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. They were really angry. <laughs> they do not like what they're being told. So being full of the Holy Spirit... He, Stephen, gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, covered their ears, and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. So right to the very end, Stephen was secure in his knowledge of Christ. And he was 
not he did not fear death. Okay. We gotta keep reading because that's not the end of this. So and then Saul was giving Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, in regions of Judea. No, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. So, we see Stephen here dying as a, as a Christian should. With no fear. These few things we need to notice here. Um... Let me just read. I got one more quote. I forgot about this. About stoning. Stephen was stoned. That's a brutal way to go, too, I'll tell you. And so, this is from Frederick Buchner in Peculiar Treasures from 1979. It's just a little deal about stoning. It says, quote, <clears throat> Stoning somebody to death, even... Somebody as young and healthy as Stephen is not easy. You do not, you do not get the job done with, with a few, with the first, okay, I can't read. Wait a minute. Stoning someone to death, even somebody as young and healthy as Stephen is not easy. You do not get the job done with the first few rocks and broken bottles. And even after you get the man down, it is a long, hot business. To prepare themselves for the workout, they stripped to the waist and got somebody to keep an eye on their things till they were through. The man they got was a fire-breathing young arch-conservative Jew named Saul. He was there because he thoroughly approved of what they were doing. So this is just about, this probably took a little while. You know, this, this ain't just a few stones. It's a brutal, brutal way to go. And Stephen, you know, he just, he... I don't know how he did it, but well, he did it through the power of the Holy Spirit. But this man was in true subjection to the Spirit. So it was a brutal way to go. He never tried to defend himself. When he gave this 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 speech, he basically was signing his own death warrant. He, I mean, he must have known they were going to kill him. Yeah. You know, he didn't even try to defend himself. He wanted to give them the truth. This is true. And so another thing I noticed right off the bat is when he says uh, in 55 but being full of this Holy Spirit he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he said behold I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God now scripture uniformly pictures Christ as seated at the right hand of God Everywhere that that's except here. And so ain't that neat? It appears as if Jesus stood up in honor of Stephen's sacrifice right here. He stood up and opened his arms and let Stephen see him there waiting to welcome him home. And as far as I'm aware, this is the only place that Jesus is described as standing at the right hand of the Father. And that hit me like a 
like a brick in the face. Okay. What does it say otherwise? It says he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's seated. Always picture he's seated because his work is finished. That's how the writer of Hebrews, you know, he says work. Jesus is seated because his high priestly work has been complete. He does. There's no more work to be done. And so that, uh, my only way I can, you know, understand that is just Jesus is just giving Stephen honor. And he's standing. As he, Jesus is saying he's the judge and the advocate. He's coming to Stephen's defense. Be right God. Five down mm-hmm. long. He was receiving mm-hmm. yeah. I picture Stephen looks up and he sees Jesus stand up. And maybe then he didn't. And he opens his arms and says, be not afraid, my son. These men can't hurt you. They can only kill your body. When you're when you're gone, you're gonna to come to me, and we're, you're gonna be in paradise with the with the guy on the cross right beside him. You know, the guy who was crucified with Jesus probably standing standing right there. So I just thought that was what a, what a wonderful Savior we have that he would give Stephen that honor to stand on his behalf. Like yeah. I was listening to a Bible study. And they were like, you know, normal people, when somebody's coming to stone, you'd probably be looking for an escape plan to run so you're not getting stoned. But Stephen looked up and saw his escape plan. Yep. I was like, I That's love right. that. That's- so real quick, a few, few um, you know, things for us to take away from this. Okay? A, few, a few points. First off, if you stand up for Christ, you're going you're gonna to meet opposition. Okay? In some form. And, you know, from what I can gather, there's more people being martyred today than in any other time in history for that faith, even more than the Romans did. So according to the voice of the martyrs, now this is from about six, seven years ago, according to the voice of the martyrs, which is a ministry who, you know, they keep up with all that. Who's being persecuted where and for what? And they try to sneak Bibles into these places that are under persecution. Um... They say that 160,000 people a year are martyred for their faith in Christ. That's their number. And uh, they're the main martyr people. They know, they keep up with all that. Where where things are happening. And um, so, if we if we stand up for Christ, you're going to meet opposition. And if we need opposition, the best thing to do is do what Stephen did, is look up. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Nothing is too big, too bad for Jesus. It's all going to be okay. There's nothing in this world that can, that can hurt us if we're in Christ. Um, it's all momentary compared to what's coming to eternity. You know, I was a knucklehead when I was a kid. And I used to fight all the time. And I boxed, and when I read that, fear no man, yeah. I come to the realization as an adult, like, fear no man. I get it now. Yeah. You know, it has nothing to do with, like, boxing and fighting and wars and, you know, so forth. Yeah. It just had a, it had a whole new meaning. When the scales fell off my eyes, I yeah. Fear God, who can, like, can destroy your soul. And the third point, real quick, is 
for those of us who are in Christ, who have assurance, who are not depending on possessing a certain piece of land, or following the law, or having a temple, for all those of us who, have, who, are, who depend on Christ, who are in Christ, death is nothing to fear. We just fall asleep. As it says with Stephen, Falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. This is the first time in Scripture that death is described as falling asleep as well. Right Interesting, he forgave them there as well. Yeah, just like Jesus. That's what I'm saying. The similarities are just his, 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 his accusation, the false witnesses, they paid people to testify against him. He didn't defend himself. He went to it like a lamb of the slaughter with truth. You can kill me if you want to, but here's the truth. I'm going to give it to you, whether you like it or not. And then even in his death, he cried out, Jesus, receive my spirit. Do not, don't hold this sin against them. I mean, what grace, what faith, what feeling of the spirit. And I mean, he just. I mean, we can easily, I could, I mean, he had supernatural understanding. He, I mean, he's just, there was some reason these people rose up against him. I don't know, we don't know, but he had to be just, he was such an effective preacher and he was causing trouble for the synagogue. I, I think he was probably going to the synagogue and saying, hey, you that, that, act, that, that you just read from the prophet Jeremiah, you know who that is? That's talking about Jesus. And they and they got tired of that. That's why they. <laughs> that's what I think. Yeah. Being, being around someone that's recently living a really holy life in itself, 